Well, I'm going to um, uh, conclude this afternoon with the further treatment of uh, Professor Wayne Grudem's systematic theology. Uh, I haven't quoted much from it in the first session, uh, but uh, it's so influential, I need not remind you. I was uh, trying to put across on Saturday that uh, from the second half and principally the last quarter of the 19th century, we had the great attack opened up on the fundamentals of the faith. We had the uh, head-on contradiction of essential major biblical doctrines. We had it in so many forms and it influenced vast numbers of people. It was a head-on attack. And our nation turned from being largely Christian to, well, considerably Christian, to a nation of nominal believers in the Christian faith. Nominalism took over. And people remained attending church, but World War I smashed that. And the men came home from the trenches from that long and terrible war and they'd seen the inhumanity of man and they rejected their nominal Christianity and the fall away from worship really set in after World War I. Continued between the wars, then uh, delivered another tremendous blow with World War II The two wars put paid largely to uh, nominal worship, nominal church going. And so, as I was saying, Saturday we were left evangelicals as a kind of remnant. But from the time of the 60s and the permissive society, it seems that the attack on the truth mounted by the enemy of souls and the attack on churches changed rather radically. Instead of attacking fundamental doctrines, we now found our practices were attacked. The attack moved from theory to practice, from doctrine to ethics and lifestyle, the life of the church, the life of the individual Christian, And that gathered pace and I think became particularly intensified in the 1990s. And there it's been ever since. The attack comes to evangelicalism through matters of practice. And I was commenting, I'm sorry to repeat this on Saturday, but I think it's very significant. We've had a lot of attention and good attention and it's a noble pursuit to statements of faith declarations of faith, and so on, but nothing concerning practice. You never see even the most diehard conservatives getting together and making statements defending the practices of believers. The activity, the ethical life, and the organized life of the church, the pattern church is gone almost entirely. 
the notion of a pattern church in the New Testament is a complete novelty today, and even among conservatives. Very strange, but not so strange. This is the enemy's attack currently for us. And uh, we, we do need to wake up to that and to put, give much more attention to practice. New evangelicalism, and if you like, new Calvinism, represents a complete abandonment of conservative practice, of conservative evangelical behavior, churchmanship, and so on, right across the board. All the great uh, celebrity preachers who are new evangelicals have nothing to say about conduct, about the encroachments on conduct by, for instance, contemporary Christian worship and so on, and its influences. They stand in a very easily towards these things. So we do have to emphasize them. And the great problem with uh, Professor Grudem's work, nice man as he may be, I've never met him, warm communicator, straightforward, and declaring his absolute trust in scripture, though it looks pretty shaky in some areas of application. All these things may be true of him, but I have to say he makes enormous mistakes, not in so much in fundamentals of the faith, not so much in the doctrinal area. There are some major things, the uh, eternal uh, subordination of Christ and so on. We could number three or four issues where he swerves right away from uh, uh, traditional conservatism. But it's mainly in practice, where he concedes just about everything of importance to the whole new evangelical wave. He is at heart, in practice, and in taste, a new evangelical. Perhaps more careful than some of them, perhaps ready to enter cautions, about extremes and things like that, in fairness to him. But that's where he sits. And that comes through very obviously in his systematic theology. So I have to urge friends to distinguish between the doctrine and the practice, the theory and the ethics. And on ethical issues, He's completely off the mark of traditional conservatism. So we've looked at that. You've seen it with uh, Pastor Beasley's presentations in his support of continuationism and so on. He's quite firm in his view that uh, tongues don't have to be literal languages and he accepts the whole package from that uh, point on. Mode of worship, we discussed this on Saturday. His uh, chapters on worship are very poor indeed. Even the definition of worship is substandard and inadequate and not uh, biblical or reformed at all. And his discussion of worship leaves out all the important things, all the major issues, and just uh, declines into homely advice from his own heart to different people about this and about that. It's a very poor section indeed. And this is the first duty 
of the Christian church and an individual believer, worship. Regeneration, I'll discuss that a little further. I mentioned it on Saturday, but he follows the John Murray view by and large on regeneration. And you cannot be a, uh, an urging, persuading gospel preacher with that view of regeneration. It is not orthodox Calvinism. It has no uh, expression in Calvin or in any of the uh, English reformers and Puritans in the Dutch and Continental Reformations. You don't find it. It's a 19th century novelty, and it's come in. John Murray was the first to promote it. Strange, too. He's so strong on the free offer of the gospel and so excellent on themes like that, but so lacking in his view of regeneration. We'll discuss it in a few moments. And you can't make a gospel offer on his view of regeneration. So there seems to be a great contradiction in his views. And yet, uh, Grudem, like Murray, offers no justification or reasoning for his view. He doesn't go into the history. If you read uh, dear old Burkhoff, you'll find you get the history of regeneration, the history of the doctrine, and so on. You won't find any reference to history in either Murray or in uh, Grudem on a matter like this. They launch into their view as though this has always been the only way of looking at things. And they don't tell you this complete novelty within Calvinism. And they don't interact with their forebears or justify their contrary views or oppose them. And that's very poor scholarship, really. So you'll find great lapses like that in the book where something is discussed but not in the context of historical views of this doctrine and so forth. And we'll come and touch on that. Regeneration. Well, sanctification has a decidedly odd view of sanctification, which makes life difficult for believers. The Lord's day is sold down the river. There's no uh, application of the fourth commandment under the new covenant. We'll talk about that a little. Church order is just a kind of friendly discussion of different manifestations of church government broadly held among Baptists with no contending for one in preference for the other or no biblical justification at all. Church order is enormously important. That's just to us. But there's no pattern church and no order. But the text is warm and friendly, very extensive. Grudem's Systematic Theology is a huge book. But so much space is taken uh, in describing non-existent problems. Problem with this doctrine, problem with that doctrine. Whoever thought this was a problem? Whoever thought that was a problem? Pages are spent in a very friendly way solving the problem I didn't need to see solved. And by the time you finish the chapter on a given subject, You've read so much, you think you've had a comprehensive treatment. You think twice, and you discover all the things that aren't there, that aren't touched upon. So that 
it's pretty well the style of the book in many sections, and yet it's got these tremendous uh, recommendations from different people. Let's talk about regeneration. It's a hobby horse of mine, as some of you know, but uh, I think it's something that needs to be uh, constantly revisited. Redemption Accomplished and Applied came out in about 1955. I remember as a youngster reading one of the American editions. It didn't come out with the Banner of Truth until 61, 62, and it had been well distributed by different people even before then. What a contrast it was. In my case, I've been reading a good bit of Flavel and Thomas Goodwin and others. And immediately, even in a completely uh, novice mind, you could see the difference. Why? You read Cap, Flavel, Goodwin and others, and preachers have instrumentality. Your preaching counts. You go into the pulpit and you, you better have engaged in much prayer because you're going to interact with souls and God may use you and use your reasoning and your pleas and your expostulations. And he may through these work in souls. What you say is, has got to be carefully thought about and sincerely winged towards others. Then you read John Murray. There's no instrumentality at all for the preacher. Why? Because regeneration is seen, not only, which is right, as a creative act of God, invisible and powerful, bringing spiritual life into the heart, illuminating the mind, making the person inclined and desirous to know and to learn the things of the gospel and inclining the will to receive them. It's all that, but it's more in Murray and Grudem follows him. It is complete conversion. It's everything. In a split second, an unconscious process, a creative act of God, turns you from an unbeliever to a fully-fledged believer. Nothing is missing. Every new created faculty of the soul is in you. Your heart, mind, will, all is renewed. You are entirely, completely, and all-sufficiently born again of the Spirit of God, leaving only to be dealt with the matter of repentance and faith which will follow pretty well instantly and automatically. So you are fully enlightened, converted, entirely regenerated being. What is the place of gospel expostulation or reasoning or appealing? What's its significance? Well, it has no significance. I go to say to you, you are unconverted people, let us imagine, and I go to say to you that you must, in so many words, you must repent and 
Put your trust in Christ and you will be up. up. I can't say that. If you repent and trust in Christ, you have been born again. You are converted. According to this, there's a, an ordo salutis, and it's all entirely encompassed by God's miraculous act in your heart up front. Now, that is so unpuritan. In fact, the Puritans wrestled much with this problem. So did the Reformers. Cramner on this is illuminating. But the Puritans wrestled with this. They were faced with a pastoral situation. We have people, they said to themselves, who have gone through long struggles. Their spiritual journey to conversion from being entirely indifferent to walking with God, well, we witnessed it in our parish and it occurred over six months in some cases, maybe longer, sometimes weeks, perhaps hours. But it was a process, they observed. And there was a, a recoiling from the message. There was resistance and excuses. Then the message gained greater hold. And then they became more concerned. And then when you think or thought they had come to embrace Christ, there were doubts and fears and further struggles and strivings. And finally they came through to assurance. Where was regeneration, they said to themselves? Was it up front? Was it at the end? Was it in the middle? And the Puritans never entirely made up their minds. You're familiar, I think, with Perkins' golden chain. Where's regeneration? It seems to be there. But then the way he constructs his golden chain, it looks as though he really wanted to put it there. And even later in the process, the Puritans couldn't always make up their minds. The Dutch were much clearer about this. You read the uh, Continental Divines, and they were always, regeneration was in the front, but it wasn't a complete conversion. It was the illumination of the mind. It was all that is necessary to incline the will and open the heart. But regeneration, and Burkhoff has this beautifully in his systematics, regeneration issues in conversion. Regeneration is the secret work. Conversion is the more visible work. Now I won't elaborate on that any further this afternoon except to say that Grudem, like Murray, puts it all in the opening phase. Instantaneous, secret, the sinner is put under an anesthetic, an instantaneous operation is carried out by God, he opens his eyes, he's a Christian, and he says to himself, I must repent and believe. What then is the preaching of the gospel? Oh, the answer of the men in this school of thought is this. Preach the loveliness of Christ. Well, that's a good thing to do. 
No denying that. But that's all they've got. Preach the loveliness of Christ. Of course, they go a little further and they say, and just warn people. There is a, you're a sinner, you need a saviour, Christ is that saviour. Just give the basic facts and the loveliness of Christ. And trust through prayer that as you do that, God will regenerate them. No point in reasoning with them. Our theology says they're stone dead. They cannot understand a thing. So until God accomplishes this total work, you can't appeal, you can't reason. That undermines your preaching, doesn't it? In practice, men with these views believe in the free offer of the gospel, but the gospel is truncated to the bare bones. Martin Lloyd-Jones called it waving the flag. That's all you do. You wave the flag. You don't preach the gospel. You don't reason. You don't appeal. You don't plead. You're not a Puritan. You're not a Whitfield. You're not in the mainstream camp at all. You've moved out of it. I think this is a small part of Grudem's systematic theology, but it's dynamite. The hardest thing you can do these days is to persuade Bible-believing preachers to preach the gospel. They want to teach on Sunday morning, teach on Sunday evening, teach on Wednesday evening or whenever their weeknight meeting is. They want to teach, teach, teach. And you can't persuade them to be persuasive. Which is the word in the book of Acts which is used more than any other word to describe apostolic preaching. The word that is used more than any other is persuade. And it means put up cases and reason between them. Make the mind work. Appeal to people the barrenness and the futility of a life for this world and the wonder and the glory and the mercy and grace of a life with Christ. It's a reasoning process. It's an appeal. It doesn't fit the theology of dear John Murray and Professor Grudem. You can't do it. So it quenches regular, persuasive, specific, evangelistic preaching. It's a vital thing for us all. Well, I've been trying, and maybe I'm just no good at it, but I've been trying for decades to persuade preachers to preach the gospel. And some do, but most won't. If somebody can explain to me that mystery, yet they love the gospel, and they depend upon it, you can't get them to preach it. And in the seminaries, well-known people on both sides of the Atlantic say, no, it's a, this is not the right thing to do, to have exclusive, dedicated, specific evangelistic services. You don't need that. 
Why do they say it? Because they're persuaded by this strange view of regeneration. This novel view. This out-of-the-mainstream view. You think it's mainstream? Why do you think it's mainstream? Only because the propounders of this view never own up to the fact that they don't find it in Luther, they don't find it in Calvin, they don't find it in the continental reformers, they don't find it in the English Puritans. It's not there. It isn't mainline Calvinism. It's very strange. Well, enough of that, the basics on that, friends, but it's uh, something uh, I'll do to the so my last breath to try to persuade preachers to preach the gospel of Christ. Well, dear friends, it's in the Westminster Confession. You know, Luther and Calvin did not distinguish between regeneration and conversion. They had a kind of comprehensive view of the entire process. Neither did the continental reformers, the continental confessions, Belgium and so on, are all the same. Westminster Confession doesn't distinguish between them. It's got them all together. It's a comprehensive process. So Burkhoff, out of the modern systematic theologies, is the most representative of the history of this doctrine, that regeneration issues in conversion. Maybe it isn't always up front. Maybe there are such things as natural convictions, as Owen calls them. Natural convictions. No spiritual light yet, but interest and even shame for sin to a certain extent, and so on. And maybe it's after that, when the Spirit moves and the seed of life is sown through hearing the Word, that the, there are spiritual convictions. And the first stage of evidence for a regenerating work of God, better to see it, I've tried to put this across, but nobody likes it, Regeneration as a sort of form of conception where spiritual life is conceived in the heart and there is a response and the person begins to think he's going to be saved because the seed of life is there. He's going to come through but it's a process. It isn't all at once. The vital thing is the seed of life coming in. Now the process, he could be made aware of his need, of his spiritual deadness, of his sinfulness. He can become aware of his need and convicted of his sin. What happens then? Well, he may have struggles. He may not surrender the world. He may not give up his views and his ambitions and his hopes in this world. But then he will. He's bound to because the seed of life is in him. 
It's been a conception. Now it's the period of gestation. And the time is going to come when he repents and believes with all his heart and yields his life. And he is consciously born again. He's only consciously born again because conception took place in the first place. The seed of life was planted. Regeneration occurred in the inner being. But the one leads to a process. And your preaching throughout that process, your witness, your counseling, whatever form the word comes in, can be used of God and vital. And you keep it up. And you appeal to that soul, and you persuade, and you reason, and you do it every week. One of uh, Spurgeon's deacons tells us that the good man said on one occasion to his gathered elders and deacons that it can take 18 to 20 sermons to crack the average nut. Well, it may be so. It's a process. And what you say counts all the way through. You are instrumental. Pray for that. Pray for the privilege of instrumentality. You've got three teaching services a week. One to teach God's word. Another to preach the gospel. Another to be more technical with the word of God and teach the saints the deep things of God. Perhaps it's your weeknight Bible study. A third of our preaching really ought to be evangelistic. I'm spending all my time on this There's one illustration, and I mention this often, which appeals to me. It's Thomas Goodwin's. His picture of preaching the gospel. Don't you know, he says, you're like a nursing mother teaching an infant to walk. And you take your babe turning into a toddler, and as a nursing mother, you... Hold his hands. You just put a finger and each hand grasps the finger. And you lead him along into walking steps so discreetly he's holding on to you, but he thinks he's doing it himself. That's the secret. And that's what God desires. God does not work by applying an anaesthetic and carrying out a secret process of total conversion. He initially regenerates that way, but that's not the process of conversion. It is the will of God that you and I should be consciously persuaded and we should personally and voluntarily and consciously choose Christ That's the will of God, that we all come willingly, gladly, 
freely, longingly to him with all our hearts. That part of the conversion process is out in the open. It's a conscious, personal, intended act. Afterwards, under the teaching of the Word of God, you learn that God did it all. And he was holding your hands and drawing you through. But it's your decision too. That's the purpose and the will of God. The regeneration is everything view ignores all that. It has no time for that. And have you ever thought about this? Everybody goes to the encounter of Christ with Nicodemus to prove an ordo salutis. Well, that's all right, although that's not the purpose of the passage. But that's all right. But be governed by this. Compare scripture with scripture. The vast majority of conversion texts in the Bible, right through the Old and the New Testaments, say this. God declares, if you do something, I will do something. If you repent, I will do such and such. If you turn to me, I will turn to you. That's an order salutis. That's an order of salvation. Our doctrine tells us that we only do that thing because God moves us to do it. And that's true, and that's correct. But at the time we do it, we are being consciously persuaded. And we make our very own, so we imagine, decision. And that's vital to the preacher and you're instrumental. Well, I didn't announce this subject. If I had done, many of you may not have come. (laughs) Who knows? But uh, there are other things too. This question of a young and old earth. I see in uh, the second edition, the 2020 edition, of Professor Grudem's systematic theology, he's opted for an old earth, and very definitely and solidly. Interesting to see the reasoning. Why does he opt for an old earth? Answer, because of the scientific evidence. So while he tells us, and I'm sure he's genuine, and he means it, while he tells us It's Bible, Bible, Bible for him. It's the word of God. It's the ultimate authority for everything. I'm sure he means it. Lo and behold, when he chooses an old earth over a young earth, it's the scientific evidence that sways him. That's interesting. I think he's a genuine man. He's all for the Bible. But he's apt to stray. And so you've got an old earth because science affirms it. Worship, we've discussed already. Church order, I haven't given myself time for. Very interesting, Professor Grudem's views on marriage and divorce. For most of his uh, active life, he's been very clear 
No divorce except for adultery. Nothing else. Of course, there can be separation if an unbeliever deserts a believer. It's a very rigidly applied application of the rule of Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. But uh, no divorce. They can't remarry. If you're deserted, you can't remarry and so on. This has been his view. Very firm and extreme on that. Now in the year uh, 2019, he changed his mind. After a lifetime declaring one thing, and he'd only just published a book on ethics in 2018, which affirms the rigid view, 2019, he changes his mind. You can go online and see his own account of it, why he changed his mind. He's very frank about it and open. He ran into trouble with his own view because he and his wife happened to have a lot of, to do in comforting a lady who had been abused by her husband, was being abused, and very badly, it appears. And that made him rethink, I may have got this wrong. I wouldn't let this person have a divorce. They can separate, neither of them remarry, but I wouldn't allow a divorce for abuse. So I'd better revisit this. And he did. And he looked at 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 15, in such a case, phrase and he began to do some research into the words and he consulted the authority I, I can't remember the number the vast number of occurrences of the word that is so translated in the King James and in most versions today in such a case the uh, person who is deserted by an unbelieving husband and lo and behold, he made a discovery. And he discovered that the use of this word in the ancient writings was very general. He thought in such a case, meant specifically in such a case of desertion by an unbelieving spouse. And then he found that in the ancient literature and in the classics, well, we know this, it applies to any case of separation. It's a very general term. It has a wide application. And so Professor Grudem was bold enough to claim a first. Never claim a first. You were never the first to get there. His first was this. I have discovered that uh, our understanding of a word in the scripture has always been wrong. And then in fact, it has a great breadth of application, and this means in such a case where there is, for some reason or other, which is unavoidable, a desertion brought about. So I now announce, he says, to the world that I've changed my mind and I bring you the fruit of my research and presumably 
we ought to change our minds too. But we were already there. And so, is conservative tradition already there? When uh, Archbishop Cranmer desired to revise the canon law of the Church of England, all church law, this was going to be the third leg of the Reformation. The first was the Book of Common Prayer. The second was the 39 Articles of Religion. He did those. And the last was the Reformation of Church Law. And he had a great deal of help, all the divines around him, and Martin Bucer in particular, and others. And uh, they produced this great volume, which is available to you now. Gerald Bray brought out a beautiful edition under the auspices of the Anglican archivist or archival authorities some years ago, and uh, a beautiful English translation of the Latin Reformatio Legum. And lo and behold, of course it never made it, this was the third leg of the Reformation that failed. It's a long story why it failed. I won't tell you that. It's very intriguing. But uh, by the time they were ready to represent something that was rejected by the past, by the commons, but rejected by the House of Lords, unfortunately, Edward VI died and the Reformation reforms were all dead. So they couldn't get it through. And Elizabeth II wouldn't have it. So it never became law. But the Reformatio Legum is a wonderful record of the views of the reformers on all sorts of things as they sought to reform canon church law. And when you read them on divorce, well, Professor Grudem had obviously never read it. They were there long before him. They knew exactly what Paul meant by in such a case. And so the revision of canon law, and I wrote about about this quite recently in the Sword and Trail, the revision of canon law included divorce for diversion, desertion with remarriage, and also violence, in speech, as well as physical abuse, anything which legitimately and unavoidably brought about separation. If something like violence leads to separation, the view of Cranmer and the reformers was that uh, if uh, the guilty party will not respond to church censure, and persuasion, and repents and changes ways, then he, a desertion is necessary, and he is to reputed, be reputed the deserter. And that would have been an English canon law from the very beginning, had they ever got that through. Had Edward VI lived a few hours longer, or a few days longer, 
but it never was to, to be. But the point is that you, you read uh, Professor Grudem on this, and you say to yourself, well, Professor, you've never been in the pastoral ministry. You've been ensconced in the seminary all your life. If you'd been in pastoral ministry, you'd maybe have made this great discovery a lot earlier, that people can be very cruel. And a marriage can be smashed up by violence of one sort or another. Maybe you wouldn't have spent your entire life teaching a curious view of Paul before being awakened to that. I hope that doesn't sound unkind. But uh, anyway, that's his, his view there. And I'll close. How long have I been speaking? Uh, I should close just with one more thing. I, I, I bought a, a print out here. I'm disorganized this afternoon. Uh, the Fourth Commandment. What I brought is a, a print out of uh, Professor Grudem's condensed views about the Fourth Commandment. He, he doesn't accept the Fourth Commandment as being valid for today under the New Covenant. And he writes this, Exodus 20, verses 9 to 11, and he quotes it. I won't read it all. You're familiar with it. But I was just amused that he quotes verse 11 too. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day, this is a modern version, therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Well, didn't he notice the sense of verse 11? Didn't verse 11 mark the fourth commandment out as being special? and grounded in a creation ordinance. But no, he takes the view that this is all to do with the law of Moses. He doesn't seem to be aware, I'm sure he is, but he doesn't seem to be aware of or mention the fact that in Exodus 16, at the time of the giving of manna, the Sabbath is mentioned there as needing to be observed, before the giving of the law and, of course, the creation ordinance throws its authoritative light across the whole of the Old Testament. What is the first moral commandment, ethical commandment in the Bible? It is the creation ordinance of the Sabbath. What could be more important? What could be more significant? Of course, we don't have the ceremonial elements that were attached to it by the law of Moses. We don't have those, but we have the Sabbath principle in the God-given Lord's Day. And it is of such moment and significance. Many, many years ago, I remember hearing uh, a preacher say, the breaking of the fourth commandment will lead to everything else which is unwanted. 
And I thought to myself, well, that can't be true. Surely something of mighty significance, like the doctrine of justification, is something you'd mention in that breath. Deny justification, everything else will tumble. And you can think of a number of other major doctrines. So deny the fourth commandment, I believe in it, but deny that and everything will tumble. But as time has gone by, I believe he's uncannily right because it is the first great moral, ethical edict in the word of God. And it is of such significance. But this is the reasoning. Like the other nine commandments, this commandment is a summary of many other specific laws in Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. No, that's wrong. Professor Grudem gets some very fundamental things wrong. The Ten Commandments are not a summary of the lesser laws of Israel and so on. They expound it and apply it in various ways. It is supreme. It alone is given by the finger of God and set apart. It alone is special and unique. And it is the head Each commandment is the head of a great family of sins. But he takes the view it's merely a summary of things that are repeated. And on that he bases his rejection of it. It is therefore best to understand the Sabbath, no text for this, as a summary representing all the laws about festivals and special days. And by that logic, the Sabbath is denigrated. So it's rejected because it's part of the ceremonial laws of Israel. He advances some other arguments. It's not like the other nine commandments because it does not reflect an aspect of God's character. But it does. We may not understand it, But that is the whole point of God resting from his works. That is something beyond our minds to grasp. But it's stated so clearly to us that it's rooted in in a practice of God, an act of God, that is beyond our comprehension. And it expresses his satisfaction. And there are various other things which are, which are just uh, completely out of line. Uh, he reasons from the New Testament that Christ, and by the way, he always, always calls Christ Jesus, whatever the context. And although this is an aside, I would urge you to observe care on this. In the New Testament, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is Jesus in the context of the gospel narratives. And in all other respects, with very few exceptions, he's our Lord, Jesus Christ. And the practice today of reducing him to his familiar name in all circumstances is really appalling. And it must have the effect on people's minds 
and people's estimation of him is the Lord Jesus Christ. However, you may feel it's cumbersome, but you must have his deity and his titles, and we esteem him. He's the risen Lord, and we need to be careful in prayer. You soon get out of the habit of calling him only Jesus. This came in with liberalism. It's the liberals who wanted to make Jesus matey. It's the liberals who wanted to turn him from divine into a friend. It's liberalism who wanted to undermine his eternity and his deity. And everyone else has followed them. He's the Lord. He's Jesus Christ the Lord. If I can persuade you of that, that's a huge thing. But anyway, uh, here, Grudem says Jesus in his conduct seems to indicate that he's bringing about a change regarding the fourth commandment, and it's about the disciples' plucking of grain. Well, I think the most reasonable view of that passage is to conclude the, act, the opposite from the conclusion that Professor Grudem draws. And then he comes into the old business. The, the Sabbath commandment is never repeated or affirmed in the New Testament. That begs the whole question, what is the Lord's day? Every time an anti-Sabbatarian tells you the fourth commandment is repeated in the New Testament, just say to them, haven't you heard of the Lord's day? That's the Sabbath principle in the New Testament, enjoined and set before us by way of precedent and so on. I don't understand some of the arguments, they're so poor, but uh, you can read them at some time for yourselves. I think that is a, a very, very significant thing. And I just conclude with this. There is a usefulness in Grudem's systematic theology. The usefulness is that it helpfully categorizes people for us. All the people who rave about it, I'm afraid, are new evangelicals at heart. I'm sorry to say that. They may be sincere Christians. I'm not saying they're great enemies. They may be used of God. But if they really go for this, they're new evangelicals at heart. That is to say, there is a breach between the doctrines and the practices, and they're very open and warm towards all the decadent practices that come with new evangelicalism. And in time, you'll find those friends yielding to each one in turn. Contemporary worship will be the first to be embraced, then something else, then something else, then something else. So I look through all the commendations in the front of Grudem, and I think to myself, these men are new evangelicals at heart. If they've actually read the systematic theology before they gave their commendation, this is where their sympathies lie. 
They don't mind this. That's very sad. And you can see things going downhill at such a pace all around us. And this systematic theology is aiding and abetting that greatly, whatever the author's original intention may have been. And we don't want to go down that road. So I'm sorry to spend so long with this because I should have dwelt more on the positives. The things that are being done away with here are the things that are the great strength of individual churches of Christian people and such a blessing to their spiritual lives and to their work and witness. It's a matter of such importance.